Hello everyone and welcome back to yet another episode of the Desi VC, a podcast where we learn about the Indian venture ecosystem by speaking to angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups. I'm your host Akash Bhat and with me today is Pankaj Makar. Pankaj is the managing director at Bertelsmann India Investments, a growth stage venture fund focused on investing in companies in the digital, education, media and services sector. Pankaj has been a VC for over a decade now and has witnessed the ecosystem grow and develop to where it is today. Let's go and speak to him about what it means to invest in growth stage companies in India and what it takes to be successful in that space. So without further ado, here's Pankaj. Hi Pankaj, it's a pleasure to have you on the show today. I'm extremely excited about this episode for a bunch of reasons, but most particularly uh, because you run a VC fund that's extremely bullish on what I believe are the pillars of modern economy in some way, education, fintech, media, and digital. But we'll get to that in a little bit of the podcast. But first of all, tell me how are you and how are things over at Bertelsmann? Uh, hi Akash, it's a pleasure to be on your podcast and uh, thank you for inviting us. Um, super excited to be here. Uh, this is work from home mode. Uh, so if you hear some disturbances at the background, um, trust me, that's the new normal and you'll keep hearing that in other podcast, podcasts and other places also. Um, so I think with that caveat, I think we are doing fairly well. Uh, personally, in the lockdown now for more than 45 days, uh, haven't ventured out. Uh, but I think there's some kind of rhythm that is now getting built uh, for, for business, for work, uh, for even uh, uh, on, on a personal side with family. Um, so yeah, overall, can't complain. So far, very healthy. And I think that's most you can ask in these COVID times. Absolutely. That's the most important thing. And I'm not sure if I've used the word unprecedented as many times as I have in my life as I have in the last uh, couple of months or so. So yeah, it's a very strange yet interesting time to say the least, uh, especially to be in venture capital as well. So let's jump straight in. You've obviously had a great career, uh, 18 years now uh, or so. And you know, throughout that period, you've been, you've been on the media side and you've been in VC for almost a decade now. So tell us, how all of that came together for you? Did you always know that you wanted to be in venture capital? And if not, what are the significant events in your career that brought you to where you are today? Sure, no, happy to uh, you know, talk about that. And uh, very quickly, a quick background. I have been an investor in India since early 2000. And as you mentioned, this is my 18th year in the market. I started my journey um, as more as a private equity and strategic investor. I used to work for a group called Usaha Tegas, which made investments ranging from 10 million to a billion dollars, average check size of 100 to 300 million dollars. Uh, and they were predominantly into uh, profitable businesses. So while they were strategic investments, they, we mostly took minority stakes in, in companies which were either leaders in, that, in those segments. And, um, you know, whether it's telecom, media, real estate, hospitality, all of these brick and mortar businesses in early 2000s in India, per se, were quite exciting. 
as the growth in these sectors was phenomenally high. Um, when I finished all of that and I started looking at the second inning that I wanted to play, I wanted to go closer to businesses which were getting formed. Um, and as, as some and as an investor, um, I, to be honest, was very afraid to take an entrepreneurial route because that is full of risk. What I do know is investments and how to kind of manage multiple companies, find the great uh, gems, uh, who then kind of are companies that kind of grow and become fairly large thereafter. Um, so, for, so venture capital was a good segment for, segment for me to move into that area. And that is when I joined Bertelsmann in 2011. And 2013, we started Bertelsmann India Investments, uh, which is a growth stage venture, venture capital fund uh, investing in India and Indian companies abroad. Well, that's, that's indeed a great journey, especially starting off the early 2000s to where you are today in terms of the industry and its evolution. You've kind of like seen it all. And anyone who gets to have a front seat to an ecosystem that is forming, shaping, as well as developing is unquestionably in a great position. And, um, you know, that's, 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 that's been great on your behalf. So while you were sharing that story, I couldn't help but think of the thing that you mentioned earlier, which is, quote unquote, the new normal that we're currently living in, because we obviously don't have a lot of clarity on when capital markets will fully reopen, be it here in the US or in India as such. But there are certain talks about markets opening up as early as, you know, the later this month in May. But these are still uncertain times. And these uncertainties are very similar to how things unraveled during the dot-com boom, as well as uh, in the 0708 financial crisis. Looking at those events, Pankaj, what are some of the learnings that you've personally had? And what can we expect both from a market perspective and within the venture community? Where are the heads at, at Bertelsmann? What are you guys thinking about? Well, number one, it's actually true that an event like this has never happened in our lifetimes ever. So trying to even model it and double guess it is very difficult. Having said that, people who have gone through at least various crises, and you did talk about the 2008 crisis, you talked about uh, the Asian crisis in 2003, the dot-com burst before that and so on. Um, I think one thing is very certain that at some point the crisis do end. That's the positive thing, right? Right. Um, and this one at some point would also end. Um, that's number two. Um, as far as crises are concerned, um, for us right now, all our efforts should go into mitigating the negative effects of this crisis and make sure that we are able to manage businesses wherein they at least sustain themselves while the crisis is going on. And number three, once the crisis is over, now whether it takes six months, nine months, 12 months, it's anybody's guess. But once it gets over, I think the key question to ask is that if there is some kind of new normal which is getting set, um, will your business be on the positive side of it, neutral side of it, or negative side of it? And accordingly plan for those days right now so that you get into the post-COVID situation with at least some tools and uh, equipments with you to harness the best opportunities for yourself, depending on where you stand as a business. 
what are some of the conversations that you are having with your portfolio companies what is the nature of those conversations and as you mentioned um you know you're talking about maybe employee cuts it could be on the fundraising side it could be just surviving through this mm-hmm. period as you previously mentioned what are the natures of the nature of the conversation that you're having with your portfolio companies look i think as i mentioned the first thing that anybody does in this crisis mode is to conserve cash whatever means that is uh and extend runway for loss making companies because most of the startups are loss making uh at least right now uh and and from that perspective having a runway of at least 18 to 24 months so that if this crisis continues uh for at least 6 to 9 months and and then the, the rebound happens by another 3 to 6 months uh you there is a sufficient amount of cash in the company to reach the numbers that it was supposed to reach and thereafter have another 6 to 9 months to fundraise again so having that kind of cash runway is important and our advice to all companies whether our portfolio or not would to would be to have that type of runway that would be the first very very basic thing that we would advise that we are advising our companies the second of course would be to then understand what would be the effects of covid on your business after it disappears or at least if that new normal gets built uh what would happen to your business and then accordingly build a strategy to react on it right and to that point are you are you guys thinking about different sort of investment thesis for a post covid world and if so what are some of the things that you're you're discussing internally without of course i mean if if it's not too confidential if you're happy to share that information with us you know honestly i when i started investing in 2013 in ventures uh very similar to how you do things in private equity industry where you know what are the sectors that are hot and you make deals there i would have a laundry list of sectors that i would find exciting and i would think that i would end up doing the deals in those sectors trust me 7 8 years down the line uh i have probably not even made a single bet in the sectors in which i got interested and i ended up making deals where i found exceptionally great entrepreneurs trying to solve outstandingly amazing problems in large markets um so i've stopped double guessing what sectors i would like what is more important to me is to find an entrepreneur who has built an amazing product in an extremely large market um of course market dynamics would change on a pre post covid world the job of an entrepreneur is to find those opportunities <laughs> my job is to find those entrepreneurs no i love that approach that's a great uh, point that you made in terms of retrospectively looking at the thesis that you had when you started initially investing and and having made zero very close to zero investments in that space kind of like talks to about the market dynamics and how we you know a lot of things are very uncertain in uh, in the vc community Yeah, look, I'm, now, I'm I'm trying to be honest here, right? Uh, yeah. Uh, if I if I had a very good idea, of course, we we all have sector theses, and we have certain views of what sectors would do well, and of course, all businesses which have a touchless point of view, whether it's online businesses, uh, businesses around essentials, whether it's grocery, healthcare, and so on, would of course benefit uh, such such. In a, in a in a in a covid world so we all have our views around it but then are there five or seven sectors that i would want people to build businesses let me find the right entrepreneurs and then invest in those versus try to push an idea down an entrepreneur's throat 
Got it. That makes sense. Now, we touched upon this earlier. You've been part of the industry for a while now. How have you seen the job of, of, of a VC change with influx of hundreds of new funds just within the last decade? And what kind of impact has that large amount of dry powder done to the industry? Or in other words, how have you seen the industry evolve during your uh, decade-long experience in, in this space? Thankfully, uh, a place like India where we invest, we feel that we are probably five to 10 years behind China and, and uh, US in terms of maturity of the VC market. So the kind of competitiveness and hence differentiation that you see in VC firms in your part of the world, whether it's the Bay Area or in China, that hasn't happened in India so far. Having said that, the VC ecosystem has matured significantly where first there used to be anywhere between 20 to 50 VCs. Now there would be about 500. But when you then start segmenting them on different stages, uh, whether they are pre-A pre funds, which are seed and early A, there are funds which are uh, early A and B, series B funds. Then there are growth funds like us who are series B, series C onwards. Then there are relatively mature, larger funds, which would then be doing uh, more mature companies and so on. Um, you would find that there is some amount of concentration in the early ecosystem, I think, which would also be true for, I would assume, the Bay Area. Uh, that is happening in India as well. So there is significant competition for uh, seed, pre-A and A type of deals. And then there would be significant competition at a later stage because a lot of strategics then jump into doing Ds and Es and Fs and, and onwards. But there is very, there's some, some funds which are in the B, C, D category. Uh, that is called the, um, the value of the value of death. <laughs> if I consider, the, you know, if, I, if I'm getting that right. So, and then there are few funds globally around, you know, focus on those themes. And the same is the case in India as well. Uh, interestingly, we are in this value of death. We are one of the few people who are doing series B, series C, series D type of teams. Now, I wanted to really touch upon, I'm glad you uh, brought the topic up of, you know, later stage investments or growth stage investments. And you've made some investments in big name Indian companies, Quicker, Pepperfry, Savan, some household names, if you think about it. How does a deal like that really come across your table? And how do you evaluate these later stage companies as opposed to an early stage um, startup where you're almost investing based on some early signs of product market fit or, or in some cases just taking a bet on the founding team? Yeah, I think a uh, very good question. And that is why I think we have been so somewhat lucky, but also somewhat smart in playing in an area which is called a value of death. Um, and, I, and I first tell you why it's called the value of death, because if you are not very, very selective in where you invest in mid stages, series B, series C, series D, um, you would end up having a mortality rate of companies of uh, early stage fund. And you would have put a lot more money to secure that outcome, which means that you as a fund, you will die. So to, to illustrate that with an example, um, if an early stage fund, um, you know, let's say makes uh, 10 deals out of those two deals have to give them uh, 
30x and everything else dies a mortality right. rate of let's say 80% then those two deals will end up giving them 15 15x each total of 30x which is a 3x on the fund that's usually how a early stage fund would look like in series b c d given that you're writing larger checks and your valuation numbers are high at best you will end up with uh, i would say 4 to 5x at best and probably 3x as a base case return on your deals if you are not very very particular with what you are doing and your mortality rate is anywhere close to i would say 50% then at best you will end up will be 1x to 1.5x which is not a great outcome if it's more than that and it's mirrors a early stage fund then you will end up with losing capital or almost around there um uh, that's the reason why most of the funds in the mid stage are not able to raise money because they don't have i mean historically it's not proven to be a great place to be now in order to make sure that your mortality rates are as low as 20% or 30% as best and 70% of your money makes makes returns of at least 5x so that your blended number is at 3 to 3.5x you need to be highly selective and at least the view that we took was that if there are great companies which tomorrow will become unicorns decacorns but we don't have data to prove that they are great companies today we will not invest with them so our mindset of diligence is of a private equity firm but we are doing venture deals and we are highly selective in where we will invest monies we will not take a judgment call at all we will back everything on the basis of data and not having data is as good as a bad deal for us So when you mean data are you talking about metrics in terms of growth are we talking in terms of how quickly a company is scaling what are we really talking about when you talk about data could you expand a yeah. bit more on that concept sure no that's a that's a very interesting point uh, and a very good question if you were to then look at the framework that i talked about where you want to keep mortality rate of a growth fund as probably around 30 odd percent and not more than that and 70% should be going in it um you want to make sure that you you as a fund should not take binary risk in companies now how do we define binary risk we define binary risk by virtue of four variables if gone wrong will make sure that you will end up with either zero or less than one x um founders right. team is complete incomplete so new people come in they either don't know how to build the business they can get the business to die or tomorrow they they the company has the most amazing talent as co-founders and they end up building a 10 billion dollar company it's a binary risk we don't want to take it so the entrepreneurs real team as well as the core team building the business both from a technology perspective business perspective everything should be complete as far as the cxo are concerned very unlike vc Uh, early stage vc i would say num product per se should be an aspiring leader already in a, in a particular category or in a particular city and there should be no question on whether this product will sell or not at least the product from from usage metrics perspective uh, growth of users perspective repeats etc 
churn, all of those should already be settled. The third thing that we will look at is product market fit and whether you're making money. So your unit economics as well as your business model and monetization model should already be built, should have been built, should have sufficient amounts of revenues to even showcase that it's a steady monetization model. You're not experimenting with the model right now. Of course, now unit economics might be slightly inferior because scale has not come. That is a bet that we are willing to take but we will not take a bet if the unit economic is so off that we have to take a very strong leap of faith of whether a company will ever be profitable or not. And lastly, right, there should not be any yeah, regulatory risk attached to the company because that also adds to a binary outcome. Right. Now, we've seen businesses that scale really, really quickly and then die for a number of reasons. It could be because of change in user behavior, new technology, or just changes on market dynamics, right? So how do yeah. you as a VC firm in the end protect yourself when you're thinking of making an investment or you've already made an investment in a company, but there are certain elements that you couldn't have foreseen. And therefore, because of that, your investment is now at risk. And these are bigger checks that you write or VCs like you are, are, are writing um, when it's a series B, C and D and beyond. So how do you protect yourself or mitigate risks uh, when you're investing in these growth stage companies? Two things. First of all, um, technology risk, whether uh, now or later, we would not take. So if you tell me a situation where there's a company which has grown very fast and for some reason there's a new technology that comes in and it can kill the entire business, uh, we ideally will not take that bet in the first place. Um, number two, we would always look for highly complex businesses where technology is one element of those that business. Um, there would be a lot of other local elements in India uh, which, which needs to be built, whether it's significant warehousing space in an e-commerce business or there is a lot of supply and demand on a local basis that needs to be built. Uh, wherein, I mean, it literally goes to counter some of the valley notions, we want highly complex businesses to be built in India, wherein that complexity acts as a moat, even if a new technology comes in, if they have not built a lot of the other stuff around that business, it will not be able to create issues to this particular portfolio company. I mean, look at companies like uh, Pepper Fry, uh, it's a furniture company. Now the problem with furniture is not, can, can you create a technology to sell furniture online, I think it's very simple. Can you create a full supply chain, including owning trucks and carpenters and making sure they are trained enough to go and deliver an outstanding experience to the consumer? It's a very complex problem to solve. Right. It's now, the whole value chain which, which yeah. becomes uh, the offering and, at that point. And, and using technology across the full value chain, but also then making sure that the, value, the full value chain works in tandem. Nobody had ever done that in India. Now, unlike US where the suppliers could be large suppliers and you can just kind of aggregate them and build a website and start selling. And there would be uh, uh, delivery companies who can then deliver that furniture in India. None of that exists or existed when we did Pepper Fry. They had to build all of this from, from, from own and outside of them, we still don't have anybody who uh, or a company which kind of does all this work. So 
Pepperfly is not just a furniture company, for example. It is also the largest large item supply chain company in the country. And that is the moat they have built in order to sell furniture. We like highly complex businesses. We like where there are so many moats that even if one variable changes, that is not um, strong enough to kill the entire business. No, I love that definition of complex businesses and what kind of moats that really bring to the table when you're evaluating a company. And to extend that concept one step further, because you've made investments both in the enterprise and the consumer space, I'd like to ask you, what is the secret behind investing in those two sectors? And one of the reasons I ask that is because today we are seeing both of these converge more and more. And in my limited experience, mm. I can tell you that the best enterprise companies think and scale like consumer companies, their bottom up businesses. And a great example um, would be a company like Atlassian or even Microsoft, which has been killing it off late in the enterprise side. What is your approach when you're thinking about both of these sectors? Are they converging in your opinion in India or are they still standalone Look, I, uh, businesses? In India, they're still to a extent standalone. The only place where we see enterprise businesses converging to a certain extent with consumer is when they are dealing with small and medium sized companies and they're building software for these type of consumers, which then tend to act like more consumers. Uh, or last mile computer consumer single uh, people versus extremely large businesses and building software for those guys. So in India, that differentiation is still there. Uh, but as I said, look, India is at least five years, if not more behind what is happening in the US. So at this point, this issue will also come in India. Very interesting. And I actually wanted to move into my next segment. And one of the things that stood out to me in my research was that, you know, you have also invested in funds. You're, you have a strategy of being a fund-to-fund -fund investor. And, um, you know, having invested in Helium, Kaizen, Nirvana, all of them funds themselves. So could you share a little bit more on what it means to invest in an investment vehicle? And what are some of the basic economics associated with it? And uh, for all our listeners who might not be familiar with the concept of fund-to-funds, simply put, it's a fund which invests in other funds, typically to diversify uh, into niche sectors within different with different strategies, perhaps in new markets. For example, with Helion, the opportunity and focus is on everything that is middle and rural India. So over to you, Pankaj, could you share with us a little more insights into what it means to be an LP in a fund and what is the strategy behind that play? Sure. Uh, so as far as our fund of fund investments are concerned and the strategy around it, honestly, it's less financial and more strategic for us, given that we also have a larger direct business and the direct business is the core business for us. And a fund FOF or fund of funds business is more add on to this strategy. The way we look at fund of fund strategy is that if we are entering any new sector or any new geography, and we have very little insights for these sectors, geographies, we of course have a 30,000 foot thesis there, but we are not the ex resident experts of these sectors or geographies, we would then go and invest in like-minded, smart investors or funds like Helion, like Nirvana, like Kaizen and so on, and work with them to get the understanding of those sectors or geographies. So the three funds that you talked about were the first investments we made 
when we entered india as a geography of course bertelsman has been in the venture space for a fairly long time so we understood venture capital in the bay area in china and so on but we did not have deep understandings or networks in india as far as venture capital is concerned and through these investments we not only got a good idea of what was going around in the venture ecosystem we ended up making a lot of good friends with whom we then co-invested and we led deals in their companies which then has brought us to where we are today as a vc investor and a fund right that's the low hanging fruit there right and what what i'm really curious about is to understand how do you look at the dilution of the thesis because there's a certain fear of watering down as uh, as and when you have multiple layers how do you ensure adherence is it by investing in funds that share a very core philosophy to what bertelsman has or are you only participating in deals that fall under those categories no so as far as choosing the funds concerned and if i've gotten your question right is your question about how do we choose these funds how do you choose your funds and two how do you also at the same time ensure there's no conflict of interest in certain investments that you make in or sure. sectors that you're making investments in sure so first first so let me answer the second part first because it's very clear and crystal clear we will not make a investment in any fund which competes with bertelsman or we will not invest okay. in any fund which where we can be competition to them so that is clear and gone um if you look at helion nirvana and kaizen they are all early stage funds we are not a early stage fund in india so from that perspective all their deals will in fact we have never ever in practice competed with those deals and um in fact they are more like a source of leads to us rather than competition because they come at right. least one Nurture, or two stages ground. yeah they are one or two stages uh, before us now number 2 what type of funds would we invest we would of course invest in funds which are strategically aligned to the sectors that where we want to invest so tomorrow we'll not go and invest in a real estate sector or or a infra sector uh, in so infrastructure uh, sector based fund we will only invest in vcs which uh, are investing or uh, uh, that funds are investing in areas that we like to kind of invest in that's one number 2 like mindedness of the uh of the investors is very very important um investing in a vc fund is at least a 10 to 12 year game and you want to make sure that uh you like the person and the person likes you it's probably almost second or third after marriage i would say as an association uh for yourself so you want to make sure that you end up kind of talking to the right set of people and working with them and lastly i would say just look at their backgrounds and what they have delivered and what capabilities they bring to the table so that financially these fund investments do make the kind of irrs that you would expect out of such such a strategy that's very interesting and you're probably the first person on the podcast who i've actually spoken to who's a fund of fund or is a fund manager um at a vc fund that that is a fund of fund so that's a very interesting concept for me and something that i'm also trying to explore a little more um <laughs> yeah, on, on the podcast yeah what is very interesting akash is that you know as bertelsman we wear all the hats we wear hats where we have we invest in funds then we invest we wear a hat where we are investing in companies and then some part of bertelsman not my team also then buy some of these companies so uh-huh. So from that perspective, we do have a full circle going on at Bertelsmann. 
that's that's brilliant um you've really plugged into every part of the ecosystem so to speak <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually does, talking about, uh, yeah sorry go on no and i say that that actually gives us a very unique perspective of what companies we would like to see as a strategic i mean uh, at the end of the day bertelsman group is a large strategic uh, which has venture capital activities as well so most of the mindset is about building businesses and business businesses which would then probably be sustainable for 10 20 30 years if not more and also then look at businesses and keep giving them the right ideas of how to build these sustainable businesses uh, to entrepreneurs so that they get that benefit and are successful in a, in a long period of time and the good thing about that is the fact that if you have vcs who have a great history of building businesses themselves and have them on your board or you have the right kind of advisors helping you all the time scale businesses i think that those are the kind of vcs you want to have on your cap table and even the early stage even when you see the success of entrepreneurs who started their companies fairly fairly young take your mark zuckerbergs or in the india context um you know oyo rooms all of these companies had some great set of advisors and vcs advising them how to build and scale these businesses and that's one of the reasons why these companies have gotten to where they are today so it's good to see that and um, just Thank to you know you know you've kind of like spoken about bertelsman's history and um, you know you've obviously been in the in the publisher space uh, for a, for a really long time so education automatically becomes an area of interest and within that you know edtech has gained a lot of momentum in india and um, you know some of the ones that have ex- um that have that have really ag- aggressively grown are the ones in on the online test prep space now in terms of you know skills as well more than half of india or the uh, or india's uh, workforce will require reskilling to beat the talent demands of what i like to call the fifth phase of human evolution or industry 5.0 so to speak uh, and we've kind of like already you know we're already there and we're seeing that it's begun to take shape in the form of remote work and education telemedicine and covid's actually been a tailwind to some of these um, sectors how do you think about this space from an investment perspective and how does your thesis evolve during a period like this i know you touched upon it uh, uh, slightly earlier in, uh, in 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 the in the episode but in the context of education which is constantly evolving um, and with newer technologies from adjacent uh sectors you talked about machine learning artificial mm-hmm. intelligence how do you see all of these kind of coming together in the education space look i think we we have been as bertelsman being one of the biggest proponent of uh, disruption in the education sector if i were to look at that thesis um for us we started looking at education or disruption in education since probably 2008 9 period and i think my personal belief is that what happened to retail industries um uh, in the early 2000s with amazon coming in and disrupting the entire retail model or what happened uh, to um i would say media sectors in the 1990s and then in the early 2000 where significant disruption came in we are going to see disruption of that mass scale level in education uh on a global basis so if anybody wants to look at sectorial dis- uh, uh disruption happening education would be one sector that would go through that probably in the next 10 to 15 years of time and hence from a venture capital perspective it is a great time to be here 
Now, what are the things that we at least think will happen uh, or at a, on, a, on a thesis basis in, in education? We think that four to five key global variables are changing. These mega trends happen probably once in every hundred odd years. And that shifts are happening now in the sector. Now, what are those four or five big trends? The first trend that we think is happening is massification of education through online and through other channels. Significant massification of education will happen where education will not just be limited to the bounds of or, or boundaries of uh, 300 to 500 people sitting in a classroom and studying that subject, it will become through online, whether it's as, as low as YouTube to as high as uh, online courses of Harvard and Wharton and Columbia, uh, massification of education will happen. So that's one. The second big theme that would also happen is that uh, there will be uh, capabilities of great education from the West will move to the East. Now, if you look at gross enrollment ratios in the West have already reached significantly high levels. And at some point it can't go higher. At the same time, um, the Eastern countries, whether it's China, India, Southeast Asia, etc., don't have as many quality institutions as the West has. And neither do we have the monies to build that kind of uh, capabilities. Now, because of online, a lot of these Western, uh, let's call it great universities will start offering courses in India. And now that the distribution cost has come down significantly because of online, um, the movement will be a lot more. Now, the movement could be uh, whether it's uh, Indian and Chinese students going to the West and studying, but it also could be uh, whether it's online courses coming out from such great universities being offered. Uh, to the, the, the students in the East. All of that will happen. The third thing that would happen in a very significant fashion as far as education is concerned is the adoption of technology as far as the colleges and universities and schools are concerned. Now, there is some amount of learning management solutions that most of these academic institutions used to follow in the West. In India, it was almost negligible. A lot more focus will go on to build, taking technology, whether it's AI, it's artificial intelligence, it's retina scans and trying to understand whether students are able to cope up with, with the learning materials, all type of technologies will come in, which will make learning a, a more a science than an art. And that would have deep impact on how instructional design, et cetera, happen in, and then courses will be rewritten, um, not from a perspective of whether Pythagoras theorem has to be treated in a different way, but from a way of learning outcomes and how, how they need to be measured and how they need to be evaluated and so on. And there will be significant disruption that will happen here. And lastly, as you mentioned, um, the skills are changing so fast that reskilling and upskilling of workforce will now become a normal, a new normal, I would say. If you look at uh, historical facts in education, whatever job our parents and their parents used to enter in with, they would probably end in that field. That may not be true going forward for our children. Um, in fact, one of the studies that, that, uh, that I read recently, uh, which is trying to kind of predict the future of uh, work, uh, is that 
there would be at least six or seven career shifts that will happen for our children and their children further um, and hence skilling and reskilling does take a very predominant uh, uh, view there and such businesses would do phenomenally well so again i'm going to stop here uh, i i'm quite passionate about education as a as a topic and i do feel that what for if if we were sitting in 1999 and somebody were to tell us that retail is going to get disrupted by amazon uh, this is where we are sitting as far as uh, education is concerned no that's brilliant i love that perspective and i guess that's also one of the reasons why a lot of parachute vcs take bets in this space for a long time i kept thinking it's it's a safe bet but i think it's it's more about the disruption and the opportunity of finding the next billion users that the east offers be it india china or southeast asia so you know i really want to jump into my last segment which is a rapid fire i'm going to shoot some quick questions at you and put you on the spot so if you're ready we'll go into that to a, in in my last uh, in my last segment sure happy to do that awesome so if you were hiring somebody for your team on the investment side what is one trait you would look for in that person number one and number one humility to be able to connect with entrepreneurs and work with them to build great businesses that's amazing uh, what is one thing you wish somebody had told you about venture capital at the start of your career that you know now and you'd like to share with somebody else who is starting out there's a significant portion of luck in this business if you think you know it all you're absolutely wrong couldn't agree more what would you like to change about venture capital in india and why um i think i'm generally very happy with how venture capital is shaping up uh, i let it grow at its own pace so valuations all of that is completely fine <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah absolutely fine i don't think we are overpaying perfect uh what's one sector that you don't invest in right now but you're extremely intrigued by look i i definitely like the concept of the next uh, half a billion users in india and globally uh, looking at bottom of the pyramid type of businesses um, mm-hmm. and that's something i'm very very intrigued with no means agri tech and otherwise all of those are very very interesting sectors. so impacts impact businesses it used so to be to impact i i think large businesses can be built around those people uh they are not just bottom of the pyramid business they are also people who are consuming things and right products can be sold to them through mm-hmm. online if you can make either marketing and distribution extremely cheap you can still kind of reach them and and make money got it okay what's one indian company you wish you had invested in and one non indian company you wish you had invested in in the last 10 years well uh, bertelsman as a as a group got an opportunity to look at great businesses including amazon etc we could not uh, life could have been very different but as far as indian companies concerned i think i've written a uh, article on my anti portfolio and i did put big basket as one of the companies where i had an opportunity to invest but could not for various timing issues and i do feel that i missed that one that's a great anti portfolio to actually post about <laughs> both of those uh, for that matter but pankaj it's been a pleasure to have you on the show you've um, you've been extremely candid and um, you know given some great insights into a lot of lot of sectors within the industry so really thank you so much for your time and i'd love to have you back sometime later in the future and just talk about the education sector because i know that's something that you're incredibly passionate about sure happy to do that anytime it was a pleasure uh, being with you and uh, best of luck And with that we come to an end of yet another great episode on our show. I wish we had more time with Pankaj to delve deeper into the edtech space but I promise you we'll bring him back sometime in the future to discuss more elaborately 
on it. As always, folks, keep your comments and feedback coming in. I really appreciate all of it. If you haven't already subscribed to us, please do so on any of the podcasting platforms that you're currently listening to us on. And while you're at it, do also rate and leave me a review so that others can discover this show as well. I'll continue bringing very interesting guests from the world of venture capital in India. So tune in every week. This is your host Akash Bhat signing off, and until next time, stay safe and keep hustling.